going to be reading from Psalm chapter 1 this morning, which is the introduction to the entirety of the Psalter and beautifully lays out how the blessed man lives in a delight, in a thrill, in an excitement when he comes to the Word of God because he knows that this Word is speaking of his God, of his Lord, and he wants to live in right relationship with his God. So we're going to read... Uh, the entirety of this passage together as we consider the blessed man and the life that God has designed for those who want to live according to his blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree, planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. These are God's eternal words to us as his people. I wonder, congregation, how would you define a good life? Now, probably depending on your age and the circumstances that you are in, you might define a good life in varying ways. For some of us, a good life would be having a job that you love to do. Being able to clock long hours and still enjoying what you do. You love to do what you do. And if you had a job like that, you would say that is a good life. While for others of us, if we were to define a good life, we would define it by the experiences, by the, the cultures that we are able to experience, by the places that we are able to see, by the different parts of the world that we were able to go to. If we had a life where we were able to tour and do, to do those activities, we would define that as a good life. And still others of us Perhaps we'll just define a good life as being healthy, as being able to do what you love to do, as being able to uh, have little impediments and hindrances on our everyday activities through life. We all have different variations of what we would call a good life. And the world is constantly giving us its own message of what a good life consists of, don't they? And so we often hear in the West that there is this idea that the American dream is a a lifestyle that is the good life. That if you have more possessions, if you have more toys, if you have more things in in, in your own possession, then you are living a good life. And other, you know, advertisement companies get in on it as well. You've heard of good life fitness, right? They say, if you want to have a good life, you need to be fit and healthy. You need to be at your peak and you need to be able to do whatever you wish to do. And they advertise that they have the good life in their own product. Even Coca-Cola, right? They are not advertising to the world that they are giving you 32 grams of sugar. What do they say? They say, we got happiness in a bottle. But if we want to understand what a good life consists of, I believe we need to turn to the God who is able to define what good is. 
You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, when he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, why do you call me good since there is none good but God? God alone knows what a good life consists of. And when he would make the heavens and earth and he would make the creation that is around us, he would comment on what he was doing and he would say he designed it good. And he was the maker and designer of you and me. He pieced us together. He knows us intimately. As Psalm 139 speaks of, he knit us in our mother's womb. This is the God who designed us. And truly, this God knows what a good life consists of. And I believe it is here presented in Psalm chapter 1. And so we're going to see the good life that God presents to you and to me. We'll see that it's a blessed life. We'll see that it is a fruitful life. And lastly, we will see that it is a lasting life. That is an everlasting life. A life where we will spend doing these things for all of eternity. So the psalm begins in this way. Blessed is the man. What a beautiful introduction to the entirety of the Psalter. Here is the blessed man. And this word blessing is not uh, speaking of, of a one-time blessing. It, it can, it's closely correlated to our word for happiness. It can be translated, happy is the man. And it's not just a, a one-time happiness. This is a state of happiness. It is, this man is living in a blessed state of mind. He is living in a happy state of mind who is doing these things. And it's presenting here a lifestyle that this man is doing. Jonathan Edwards says this, God created man for nothing else but happiness. He created him only that he might communicate happiness to him. The God who designed us knows what will make humans uh, delighted and blessed in his presence. And he is laying these things out before us. But notice that this blessed man who is living a blessed life is not just blessed in what he is doing, but he is also blessed in what he is rejecting. You would think that the psalm would begin by saying, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. But no, he interjects and he begins to focus on what this blessed man is rejecting. He is actively rejecting a certain lifestyle. This blessed man is, is, is not walking in the counsel of the, godly, of the ungodly. He is not standing in the path of sinners. And he is not sitting in the seat of the scornful. You see, there is a declension, a degradation of what is happening that the psalmist is rejecting from the get-go. If we were to imagine a character who is going down this path, it would begin with a, a person who is just hearing about the conversation. He's just hearing about the parties. He's hearing about the entertainment. And he's just, he's just walking in it. He's just hearing about it and just, just, just tipping his, dipping his toes in what they are saying. But then you see that this, this course where he begins to listen to what they are saying soon leads to a further path of degradation. Because the next place that you see him, you see that he is standing in the path of sinners. And the, the translation here is the way of sinners. He's standing in their lifestyle. He is participating in their activities. He's participating now in what they are doing. And he is standing, which is to say he's firmly planted in living the same lifestyle as the world that surrounds him. 
And soon this leads even further down the road of degradation until we finally see him seated in the seat of the scornful. And you'll notice that there's a comparison. If you look at Psalm chapter 2, you'll notice in verse 4, it speaks of God who is sitting in the heaven, who is laughing at those who are trying to overtake his throne. And he is rightfully laughing at them because this is a futile business. But what that is telling you, that God is seated in the heavens, means that this is his rightful dwelling place. This is where he lives. And that is why Ephesians will tell us, consider yourselves seated in the heavenly places. It is telling us, consider your dwelling place, your home, your place as belonging in the heavens. So now when we get to this, this, the, the furthest down the road that these sinners are walking, we see they are, they're seated in the seat of the scornful. Which means they've now made their home in sin. They've now made it a part of their lifestyle. And they are actively mocking and ridiculing anyone who is not participating in the same sins that they are committing. You look at our world, we see this all around. The LGBT agenda that is going on right now, the world is laughing at those who are not accepting and who are not promoting this lifestyle. They are seated, they are comfortable in a lifestyle of sin. And anyone who does not participate, you are bound to be ridiculed by them. That is the road that the blessed man rejects. From the get-go, he rejects this lifestyle. He says, I am not going down this road because this is not how God has outlined a blessed life for me. I know it is in relationship to him. And if he says those things are wrong, then I'm going to trust him. Because he is the maker and designer of us all. So what is the blessed man doing? We see here that he is delighting in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now the law is not just speaking of the Ten Commandments that we read. Although those are definitely included. But the law speaks of the Torah. The, the, all of God's instruction that he has given to us. Because the blessed man is not content just to know that there is a God. But he needs to know how he can live in right relationship to his God. And so he comes back to this word day in and day out because he loves that this is revealing his God. It's teaching us who he is, what he loves, what he desires, what is his will for our lives. And he comes back to this again and again because he wants to live in right relationship to the God he so loves. Sam Storms has this wonderful quote, a commentator on this psalm. He says, Would it surprise you to discover that God's primary agenda in the giving of his law is your optimal and most durable delight? God's strategy in disclosing his will and ways, whether in the form of rules, prohibitions, commandments, or exhortations, isn't to muzzle human joy, but to maximize it. God wants to see us live in relationship to him. And when we follow his ways, when we follow his truths, we'll find that our desires change. We'll find that it accords with the delight and, and the peace of those who are living in right relationship to their God. So this blessed man is meditating on God's word day and night. Now this word meditation 
is, is not just, you know, five minutes in the morning and I'm done, right? It would be odd if, if a husband said, I love my wife, so I give her five minutes in the morning and then I'm done with her, to, you know, through the rest of the day. No, this, this meditation day and night is a constant dwelling on God. And this is why it's delighting him. He's constantly dwelling on the words that God has revealed to him. He's mulling it over, right? I like to speak of meditation as the digestion of the soul. So kids, when you're eating supper, your parents will often say, chew your food, right? Because, because when we chew our food, we are breaking down the food so that the nutrients will give a, a strength. It will strengthen our bodies. And when we meditate on God's word, when we maul over the words that he is saying, when we think about their implications and how it relates to our lives, what is happening in our souls is that it is breaking down these words and the nutrients and the strength is giving vitality to our souls. So we are called to meditate on this word day and night. It's not like the meditation we have in our world, right? Where you, you, you try to meditate to, to clear your thoughts or you, you meditate on a certain mantra. No, scriptural meditation is this practice of deeply thinking through the words of God and how it relates to you and how it applies to you and how it speaks of your God and how it's telling you of how glorious his name is. And this is what the blessed man is doing day in and day out. And so we see that this is the blessed life that God is calling us to. And we'll notice that this is a fruitful life. But I'd like to ask before we move to that second point, how is your relationship to your devotions, right? When you pull the word of God out in your family devotions or in your personal devotions, do you treat it like this is a delight? Do you treat it like this is, this is my love? This, this communicates everything about my God to me. And so I love to come to God's word. It's not something I'm checking off the, you know, checking the box and getting off the list. But it's something that reveals my God. It grounds me. It secures me. It's my delight. Because the psalmist says, the blessed man, he delights in this thing day in and day out. And this is what we are called to do with God's word on a regular basis. And we'll see that this is an immensely fruitful life. Notice that the psalmist reaches for a metaphor for describing what this man is like. In verse 3, he says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. I love how he starts it. He says he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Notice that he says that this blessed man is planted. Because none of us ever found our way to grace. None of us ever saved ourselves, found out about God, and, and knew how we could live in relationship to Him. No, He found us. And so we are planted by streams of water. Like Adam in the garden, right? God made Adam, and then you'll read that He placed him in the garden. God, in other words, was going to provide Adam with whatever he needed. All the fruits, all the food that he needed, God was going to be the provider for Adam. And us and our salvation, it applies the same way. None of us ever came to grace. No, we were taken from darkness to light. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive to Christ. It was God who was bringing his word to us and planting us in redemption. Planting us in this word. Planting us in his kingdom. It is he who uh, plants the people that he will have as a part of his redemptive covenant community. So he's planted by rivers of water. 
And this is literally the division of waters. And what God is saying here is he is going to make the way. He is going to make the way to make his people have all that they need, right? If you've ever done any gardening and you're trying to keep something alive, whatever plant it is, you know that the first thing you need to secure is water. And God who created all plant life, he created all, all, all the realm of all these different flowers and all these different trees. He surely knows what it takes for people to live in relationship to him, to have what they need both spiritually and physically. God has a green thumb as a gardener and he knows what his people needs. And so he plants them by rivers of water. The rivers of water speaks of the division of waters. And you'll read this in in Eastern cultures, right? That they would find a stream and they would divide the stream to make sure that the water would come to their different agricultural fields. And so you'll read of uh, those who are around the Nile, for instance. They would divide the Nile. They would channel this water and they would direct it to their plants and agricultural life that is around. And this is likely what the psalmist is referring to. He's saying that God is directing, he's channeling, he's making sure his people have what they need to survive and to thrive in him. And this is why you read that this, this tree is quite unique. It's leaf does not wither. It doesn't fade. It doesn't die. It's continually growing because God is supplying everything it needs at its roots. And so what happens when we believe on Christ, what happens is inevitably we bear fruit. We continue to grow because God is taking care of us and he gives us what we need to continually grow in him. And so it says that uh, it it continually brings forth fruit in its season. This is such an Edenic image, right? When God would make Adam and Eve, he would say to them, be fruitful and multiply. And the psalmist is speaking of a tree because this is often a metaphor for how humans work. Jeremiah 17 uses this exact same metaphor. Humans are like trees. Our roots go into God's grace. It goes into his word. And the more that our roots go deeper and deeper into who our God is, the more that what inevitably happens is we more and more bear fruit to his glory. As James tells us, faith without works is dead. But when you have true faith, when you believe on Jesus, the inevitable result is that you are going to bear fruit. And that fruit is outlined in Galatians 5 as you hear the fruit of the Spirit being outlined by Paul. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are things that will spring up in the Christian because of our faith in who our God is. And so we read that this man who is like a tree, he prospers in all that he does. Whatever he does shall prosper. And that's a a beautiful uh, truth, that we prosper because of who our God is. You see this in the life of Joseph, for instance. When Joseph was made second in command to Pharaoh, you can begin to wonder, how did he get into that position? And scripture makes clear, it's not because Joseph was some intelligent guy. It's not because Joseph had an amazing IQ or he had a real good business sense. No, the reason that Joseph was in the house of Pharaoh, made second in command over all the land, is given in Genesis 39. Where it says the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. 
The reason any of us prosper in this world is not because of our own doing. It comes down to the fact that the Lord is with us. And if the Lord is with us, we can be said to truly prosper in this world. And this is not the prosperity gospel, right? It's very different. If a prosperity gospel preacher was preaching this text, you know, he would speak of how Joseph got to second in command of the house of Egypt, how the Lord was blessing him. But he would ignore about 80% of Joseph's life. Because Joseph also truly suffered. When you look at his life, he was thrown in a pit by his brothers and left to die. He was maligned by Potiphar's wife. He was forgotten by the butler. No, Joseph truly suffered. But at the same time, you can say Joseph truly prospered. The Lord was with him so that he would be elevated in the house of Egypt. He would provide for all of his family. He would come down to him in the land of Goshen. No, Joseph was blessed by God. And the same is true for us as believers. We are made to prosper, but this doesn't negate that we may suffer through this world. And so I want to ask you, are you thankful for how the Lord has been placing, has been planting you as his people? Right now we are in 2022. And for thousands of years, the gospel was pretty much limited to the nation of Israel. As God would communicate his truth to them. But now through the cross we have this gospel going out to all the nations all over the world. So that you guys here in 2022 would have his word coming to you. Would have his streams of mercy flowing to you. So that you might know who he is. You know we so often look ahead to the future and say man things might get difficult in the days ahead. Things might, might be hard in the days ahead. But remember Psalm 03, O my soul, forget not all God's benefits to me. When we look back and when we look at our world, even now today, there's never been a time where there's so many Bibles in our land, in our hands. There are so many books that are being written about this glorious God. There's so many uh, sermons being preached throughout this land uh, uh, week after week. And this is all God as your gardener, as your caretaker of the soul, bringing you what you need, both physically and spiritually. Let's not forget all his benefits, and let's be thankful for the way he has been ministering to us. I know I am so thankful for this community that I was, I was brought up in Jordan. I was so thankful for the, the constant preaching of the word, for all the sacraments that were brought, all the grace that, that God had given to me, the family that I had. There was so much to be thankful for. And when we remind ourselves of all that we are thankful for, it leads us to praise and to worship him and to notice that he is going to take care of us to the end because he's been so good to us in the past. That was uh, the words of the early church father when he was dying. He said, I'm 86 years old, but the Lord has been faithful to me these past 86 years. Am I going to deny him now? No, because he's been good to me this whole way. And when we have a confidence in all that God has done in the past, it gives us a boldness to walk into the future knowing he will take care of us to the very end. Lastly, I want to speak of how this blessed life that God presents, this good life that God presents, is a lasting life. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. There is a stark contrast here. The ungodly are not so, 
And he doesn't say, but they are like a dead tree. He doesn't stick with the metaphor. No, that language would not be strong enough for him. They are like chaff. Chaff is immensely purposeless. It is useless. It is rootless. And it is fruitless. And so he says, they are like the chaff. You know, in, in, in the harvest time, after the, the workers would work in the wheat fields and they would take the wheat down, they would, they would bring it together in these large circular uh, uh, pits that they would make in the middle of the field. And what they would do is, it's called a threshing floor, they would throw this wheat up in the air. And what would happen is all it would take is a slight breeze and the chaff that was in that wheat would be blown out. Because the chaff did not belong with the wheat. It had no part in the wheat. It was not food. And so it needed to be taken out. And the psalmist is saying, the wind drives away the chaff. Notice how, how big of a contrast that is. Trees, you know, they're rooted. They're grounded. They can go through wind. They can go through storms. They can go through some, some turbulence in the world. Chaff, all it takes is slight breeze, gone. And the psalmist is saying, this is what the wicked are like. In other words, he's saying, Look how wrong the world gets it. They do not know what a blessed life consists of. Consider their end. In a moment they will be blown away. They have no idea what a blessed life consists of. And so he's saying don't go down this road. Because the Lord does not know this way. The Lord is said in verse 6. To know the way of the righteous. And that knowledge is not just an intellectual fact. That is a deep personal union with his people. The way of the righteous, the way of the blessed man, those who are delighting in his word, those who are keeping themselves from the sins and practices of the world. God says, I know that way. I know that person. And that knowledge is intimate, right? Adam knew his wife and they conceived. Jesus would boil down eternal life to the knowledge of God. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. And in knowing our God, having a personal relationship with Him, we are given, um, we are uh, united to our Lord, and the Lord gives a promise that He knows this way. It may seem like these, these, these differences are not that far apart. You know, living in the world and the guy who's just doing his devotions three times. You know, what's, what's the big difference between these? And we see here in the psalm that these are vastly different. They're as far as part as heaven and hell. And so we need to see that the Lord is giving us here uh, the blessed man. He's showing us what it is to live in, in union with him. This is indeed the blessed life that he offers to us. When Jesus would preach in the Sermon on the Mount, he would use very similar language to Psalm chapter 1 to delineate these two paths. He would speak of a narrow way and a broad way. He would speak of two trees, one that is living and one that is dead. And he would speak of two foundations, one that is on the rock and one that is on the sand. And what Jesus was doing is what the psalmist is doing. He's delineating here that there are two paths that all of humanity are to be found on. The one is in union with him, in relationship to him. That's like a rock. That's like a living tree. That is a blessed life. And there are those who have no idea about the creator and maker who has designed and made them. And Jesus was, was warning people to come, to live in relationship to him. This psalm is a blessed psalm. It's showing you a good life, but it is also a warning. 
Don't go down the path of those who have no idea how to live in right relationship with God. God is the one who has designed us for relationship with himself. You remember in John chapter 4, when the woman came to the well, she had five relationships in the past. She was living with another man. She had gone through some brokenness. She had gone through some hard uh, sins in her life. She She had seen what the world had to offer and found it unsatisfying. And notice what Jesus says to her. He says to this woman, I am the water of life. And he was telling her, I can provide what your soul needs. You drink from this water and you will never thirst again. In other words, I can satisfy the human condition. I can satisfy your heart so that you find joy in me. And at the end of the book of John, you'll find a very peculiar statement that John writes in his book as Mary comes to the garden and she sees Jesus coming out of the tomb, third day, risen again. And she sees Jesus walking in the garden. And she, she, it says that in John that she supposed him to be the gardener. And it can seem like, why is John speaking about better thoughts here? I think John is very purposely showing us something here, something uh, that's, that's showing the hand of God, the providence of God. J.K. Chesterton, I think, picks up on what John is doing in his gospel. He said this, that on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave and the stone rolled away. And in varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died in the night, and what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. Here is God coming again. He is the gardener who caretakes, the caretaker of our souls. And he has given us these streams of mercy through his gospel that are providing for you and me to this very day. God knows what a true life, a good life consists of. It is a life that is blessed. It is a life that is fruitful. It is a life that is everlasting. We will experience this life for all of eternity. You know, the catechism says, I already experienced this now in my heart. And even after this life, I will experience such a perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Let's thank God for that good news that he has given to us and his son.